beginning tonight's talk with some words from the Buddha. All beings are owners of their kama, heirs of their kama, born of their kama, related to their kama, supported by their kama. This evening's talk is about kama, <laughs> obviously. I'd like to begin by saying uh, something that I've found to be very helpful and supportive throughout the various phases and stages of my practice over the years as I began to connect, connect with and more and more deeply understand the teaching of Kama. And this is that the teaching about Kama offers and brings to an ever and ever clearer light a path of practice that isn't based on fear of any higher authority, but rather founded on a clear understanding of the natural law of cause and effect as it relates to human behavior. Consequently, the teaching on Kama is not so much something to be believed, to be believed in, as it is to be understood as we come to see and know it in operation. It turns out that Kama is not some unchangeable or strange concept. And as a Western woman, and I think that I can pretty safely say this for uh, most of us here, women and men, who have been brought up and conditioned as Westerners, that it's been actually kind of a relief to discover this. The teaching, relevancy, and understanding of Kama which is one of Buddhism's central themes, is really quite accessible and actually even quite ordinary. Maybe even so ordinary that it may elude our very complicated minds. So what is Kama? Etymologically, or the root word of Kama is action or deed. And in the context of the Dhamma, it's defined more specifically and clearly as action based on intention. Another way of saying this is action based on motivation, which is usually the way that uh, Tibetans express it, Tibetan Buddhists express it. In English, the word motivation has a deeper, or maybe we could say subtler, meaning than intention does. It's really the motivation behind or underneath, the, or preceding, we could say, the intention. Motivation or intention is what leads to deeds willfully done, deeds done through volition. In the Buddhist teaching, Kama 
refers only to intentional or volitional action. Intentional or willful action is the mental factor responsible for kama. So, kama is intention, which includes will, choice, decision. This mental impetus which leads to various actions, both creative and destructive actions. This is really the essence of kama. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. Monks, it is intention, I say, that is kama. Having willed, we create kama through body, speech, and mind. And just to mention the Sanskrit word, which is uh, often used as the translation in English, is karma. There are two sorts of volitional action that come from two flavors of motivation or two flavors of intention. Wholesome motivation, wholesome intention leads to us to choose or to act or to speak in a wholesome way. And unwholesome motivation or unwholesome intention leads us to decide to act or to speak in an unwholesome way. So we could say wholesome intention or motivation is wholesome kama. And unwholesome intention or motivation is unwholesome kama. Kama is a law of nature. Kama is the way of things. The law of cause and effect, cause and result. So a very ordinary, mundane, everyday example just as a rubber ball that's thrown against a wall bounces back, skillful, unskillful, or neutral intention and action generates inevitable consequences. The law of kama is one of the fundamental natural laws which, uh, through which we create vastly different realities. As we experientially, through our own direct, immediate experience, begin to understand this law, this law of kama, how these consequences are created, combined, and intensified throughout our life begins to be clarified. The Dalai Lama said, it's more important to understand kama than emptiness. Something that I've discovered by way of my own deep practice that, and I've discovered it to be quite amazing and uh, quite illuminating, is that in the context of the teachings and in our practice of the Dhamma, intention has a much subtler meaning than it commonly has in the way that it's used in, and understood in everyday English. I think we usually think of intention as the link between internal thought and its resultant external actions. So examples such as, I did that intentionally, or 
is that really, in speaking to another person, is that really what you meant to say? The Buddhist teaching tells us that all actions, speech, and all thoughts, no matter how fleeting, as well as the responses of the mind, the heart, to various sensations received through each of the sense doors, the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind, that all of this, without exception, contains elements of intention. So this means that the mind subtly, or sometimes not so subtly, volitionally or willfully chooses objects of awareness and reaps the karmic fruit of these choices. Intention is the factor of mind which leads the the mind to turn towards or to turn away from various potential objects of awareness. Intention is the factor which leads the mind, the heart, to proceed or not proceed in any particular direction. From this perspective, it's intention that guides or intention that governs how the heart, the mind, responds to stimuli. As our practice deepens, we begin to see and to know more and more clearly through our very own direct experience that intention is the force, we could say, that organizes the movements of the mind. Which means that intention is what determines the states that are experienced by the mind, the heart. The Buddha spoke many, many times uh, about the fact that the motivation or the intention that leads to action is the mental impetus that's the determinant of our karmic fruit. In other words, the motivation or the intention that leads to action is what determines the result of our action. So basically this is the teaching of cause and effect, or cause and result. Inherent in each intention, or each motive in the heart, in the mind, no matter how subtle, is an energy that's powerful enough to bring about subsequent results. And it is possible to actually experience this process occurring with a very strongly developed mindfulness and a deep, strong, focused, concentrated attention. It takes some doing, though, some practice, to experience it directly in in its process. So in light of the fact that no matter how subtle the intention or the motivation is, there's an energy within it that's powerful enough to bring about subsequent results. In light of this, 
consider that even one tiny thought that may not be even a very particularly important thought isn't without consequence. It will result in at least a tiny speck of comma that's added to the stream of conditions which shapes one's mental activity. If this speck is practiced repeatedly over and over again in the mind or expressed repeatedly through external expression in speech or in actions, the result, the karmic karmic result, is strengthened in the form of maybe one's character traits and even through maybe our bodily makeup such as various physical features and various expressions, physical expressions, as well as in the form of our various verbal and active responses or reactions in relationship to the outer world. Even the responses and reactions that come to us from external sources can sometimes, occasionally, sometimes, maybe more than occasionally, show up in similar repetitive ways and be strengthened when we're unaware and repeatedly acting out or practicing the specks, so to say, of mental comma that add to the stream of conditions that shape our mental activity. So what comes to us from the outer world is very much connected to the comma that uh, has been created in the stream of consciousness of our own heart and mind. And it can be repetitive. There's a Tibetan teaching that says something like this. Everything rests on the tip of motivation. And the Theravada way of saying it might be, everything rests on the tip of intention. A painful or destructive intention, a painful or destructive comma, doesn't have to be on a a gross level for it to be effective. I remember once getting a note that uh, wasn't pleasing to me. It wasn't at all pleasing to me, actually, when I was sitting a retreat many, many years ago. And I proceeded at that point, after reading this note, to very angrily uh, tear it up, uh, tear up this piece of paper into a lot of little pieces of paper, the, the paper that the note was written on. And even though that piece of paper itself had absolutely no importance in and of itself, the action... Uh, certainly had some effect on the quality of my mind, on the quality of my heart. And in contrast to this, more recently I was cleaning off my desk, and with a neutral state of mind, I just simply threw away some scraps of paper. That action producing uh, a very different effect on the quality of the heart, the quality of the mind. If we repeatedly act out of an angry intention, the effects of this type of accumulation will become clearer and clearer and may develop to a much more significant level within our own uh, karmic stream, heart and mind. In 
in the wheel of dependent origination, or what is sometimes called the wheel of interdependent arising, kama, specifically in the terms of intention, is called the agent which fashions the mind. So in light of this uh, discussion, I'd like to read some words from the Buddhist scholar Venable Paiuto. Consider the specks of dust, dust which come floating unnoticed into a room. There isn't one speck which is void of consequence. It's the same for the mind. But the weight of that consequence, in addition to being dependent on the amount of mental dust, is also related to the quality of the mind. For instance, specks of dust which alight onto a road surface have to be of a very large quantity for the, uh, before the road will seem to be dirty. Specks of dust which alight on a floor, although of a much smaller quantity, may make the floor seem dirtier than the road. A small amount of dust accumulating on a tabletop will seem dirty enough to cause irritation. And an even smaller amount alighting on a mirror will seem dirty and will interfere with its functioning. A tiny speck of dust on a spectacle lens is perceptible and can impair vision. In the same way, motivation or intention, no matter how small, is not void of fruit. As the Buddha said, all kama, whether wholesome or unwholesome, bears fruit. There is no kama, no matter how small, which is void of fruit. In the same way, the mind has varying levels of refinement or clarity, depending on accumulated kama. As long as the mind is being used on a coarse level, no problem may be apparent. But if it's necessary to use the mind on a more refined level, previous unskillful kama, even on a minor scale, may become an obstacle. There's a wonderful section uh, of short suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya, Connected Discourses in the Woods, a few of which I offered in a Dhamma talk earlier on in this retreat, towards the beginning of this month. And this is, uh, these suttas are, uh, take place uh, where in the, in the woodland, woodland thickets, uh, where various practicing uh, woodland-dwelling devas uh, are um, practicing, and uh, where various uh, uh, and where they approach the various um, monks who also come into these same woodland thickets to practice. So I'd like to share just a, a small portion of one of these suttas, uh, short dialogues that I offered early on in the retreat, because it's really appropriate in terms of this discussion. And this is the verse uh, about uh, a monk, a bhikkhu, who after returning from his uh, daily alms rounds and then eating his meal in this particular woodland thicket where he practiced every day, 
He would go down to a nearby pond and sniff a red lotus. And when the deva who lived in this same woodland thicket saw this, she thought, having received a meditation subject from the Buddha and entered into the forest to meditate, this bhikkhu is instead meditating on the scent of flowers. If his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. And then she goes on to thinking, let me draw near and reproach him. So, out of compassion and wishing to stir up a sense of urgency for the monk to practice, the deva addressed the monk as follows. And this is the deva speaking. When you sniff this lotus flower, an item that has not been given, this is one factor of theft. You, sir, are a thief of scent. And the bhikkhu responds to the deva. I do not take, I do not damage, I sniff the lotus from afar. So for what reason do you say that I'm a thief of scent? And he goes on, one who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers, one of such rough behavior, why is he not spoken to? And the deva responds to the monk, when a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to him, but it is to you I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere's hair tip of evil appears as big as a cloud. The understanding that various experiences of stress, various experiences of suffering and and the experience of ease are the results of our karma, the results of our action. Our actions of thought, speech and deed right here and right now in this lifetime and on back and back and back. This is karma. This is our comma. We could say we're born, we spring out of the womb of comma. And even though we may not, or we may, may or may not like it at times, we are the undeniable heirs of our comma. For instance, just as soon as we've spoken words or performed any particular action, we've totally lost control over it. And yet, it remains with us and in some way inevitably returns to us as what we could call our due inheritance. So what does this mean? We could say with everything that happens and the result of ease or dis-ease in our mind, in our heart, that this ease or dis-ease is the outcome, meaning it's the response or the reaction of our own mind's relationship to all of the internal and external happenings. In other words, our suffering and our happiness in this life in any given moment is due to our own mind. 
meaning our motivations, our intentions, and the consequence, consequent actions, our wholesome responses or our unwholesome responses, reactions to internal and external phenomena. Our ease and happiness or dis-ease and suffering is due to the motivations, intentions, and subsequent actions, the deeds of our mind, body, and speech, not due to our wishes, not due to our hopes and our dreams for ourselves, and not due to some other person or some outer seemingly antagonistic or mysterious or strange or foreign world. As awakening beings, our practice continues to develop our capacity to see the truth of how things occur, how things unfold, and to see their nature. As this comes clearer and clearer through our direct experience within our own body-mind continuum, we quite naturally find that the intentions the motivations in the mind more and more often lead to wholesome, responsive, creative choices rather than to unwholesome, reactive, destructive choices. One of the great benefits of our practice comes as a sense of fulfillment, joy, and harmony as we come to understand and as we come to live our understanding, knowing that we, in fact, are the owners or the heirs of our kama, and that in this knowing, we can and we do actually actively create and fashion our life, and that the more clearly we know our motivation, our intentions, the more clearly we have the possibility of creating a deeper, sustaining, and more pervasive experience of well-being throughout our life. Understanding the law of karma and living our understanding offers us the potential experience of a sense of inner peace and a sense of well-being and wholeness. If we live in ignorance, if we live with ignoring or misunderstanding in relationship to the way of things. We're living in conflict. We're living in disharmony with the way of things. And so we're bound to experience fear, anguish, grief, dissonance, and confusion. As this understanding of kama begins to take root in us, it actually has the power to free us from fear. When, in fact, with everything that happens within us and around us, we begin to see that we only meet ourselves, we only meet our own mind, what is there to fear? the heart, the mind, begins to relax. And we begin to know that we can change our mind. 
we truly, really, truly begin to know that we're not trapped running around and around and around the karmic wheel. It's as though we're all artists, but instead of canvas or paint or clay or marble or music or pencil and paper as our creative medium, it's our very mind, body, and heart and the immediacy of our life experience that are the materials of our creative expression. And so again, one of the really great benefits of our practice comes as a sense of fulfillment, joy, and harmony as we come to understand and to live our understanding, knowing that we, in fact, are the owners or the heirs of our kama, and that in knowing this, we can and do actively create and fashion our life. And that the more we clearly know our motivations, the more we clearly know our intentions, the more clearly we have the possibility of creating a deeper, sustaining, and more pervasive experience of well-being throughout our whole life. The Buddha considered mental karma to be the most important and the most far-reaching in its effect. Because as well as mental kama being what shapes our inner reality, thought precedes all of our actions of body and speech. The flavor of our thoughts, be they wholesome or unwholesome, are conditioned by our intentions, conditioned by our motivations. Our motivations are conditioned by our view, our understanding, with our views often showing up as maybe our beliefs, showing up as our preferences, which are what direct our motivations, direct our intentions, and the resultant thoughts, which then potentially flow out into words, flow out into actions, various actions. So just simply and briefly, what does this mean? If we cling to the view, if we cling to the understanding of ourself, other beings and things, and even situations, experiences, and places as being independent, separate, and static, meaning unchanging, we're motivated by misunderstanding, we're motivated by ignorance what in the Buddhist uh, teachings are called wrong view. This ignorance, this or ignoring the truth of things. With wrong view, this misunderstanding, our intentions, our motivations are coming from a self-centered, disconnected, non-harmonious, unhealthy, unwholesome place. And consequently will inevitably bring suffering to ourself and to others. If we have the understanding, if we're growing into the understanding that ourselves, other beings, all things, situations, experiences, and places are totally interdependent, 
and arise only because of various causes and conditions coming together. And that in fact the causes and conditions themselves are always also always in flux. That nothing, no thing abides independently or separately or is static. If this is our understanding or we're growing into this understanding, our intentions, our motivations come out of what is called right view. And so our thoughts and the subsequent flow of words and actions all come from a place of harmony and what I like to call a lightness of being and are appropriately responsive to any given situation and consequently are beneficial in both overt and in subtle ways in relationship to ourselves and in relationship to others. And some of the Buddha's words regarding this in his speaking to his monks. He says, Monks, when there is wrong view, bodily kama created as a result of that view, verbal kama created as a result of that view, and mental kama created as a result of that view, as well as intentions, aspirations, wishes, and mental proliferations are all productive of results that are undesirable, unpleasant, disagreeable, yielding no benefit, but conducive to suffering. On what account? On account of that pernicious view. It's like a margosa seed or the seed of a bitter gourd planted in moist earth. The soil and water taken in as nutriment are wholly converted into a bitter taste, an acrid taste, a foul taste. Why is that? Because the seed is not good. And then he goes on. Monks, when there is right view, bodily kama created as a result of that view, verbal kama created as a result of that view, mental kama created as a result of that view, as well as intentions, aspirations, wishes, and mental proliferations are all yielding of results that are desirable, pleasant, agreeable, producing benefit, conducive to happiness. On what account? On account of those good views. It is like a seed of the sugar cane, a seed of wheat, or a fruit seed which has been planted in the moist earth. The water and soil taken in as nutriment are wholly converted into sweetness, into refreshment, into delicious taste. On what account is that? On account of that good seed. An important aspect of right view is what we call self, which is often uh, a reference to this body as self. This body which is actually made up of many elements with 
all and each of them being in continual flux. The four great elements and the experiential characteristics that we come to know directly through our practice. This is the ultimate reality, we could say, or one of the ultimate realities of this body that we can come to know directly through our practice experience. So I'd like to just uh, offer the particular um, experiential characteristics of each of the four great elements that we, in fact, can very directly experience in our practice. The characteristics of the earth element that we directly come to know through our practice, the experience of hardness, of roughness, of heaviness, softness, smoothness, lightness, as we pay attention to the body. The experiential characteristics of the water element that we come to directly know through our meditative focused experience directly in the body. The water element characteristics are flowing and cohesion. And the fire element characteristics that we know very easily with a clear connection in the body. Heat or warmth, cold or coolness. And the wind or the air element that we come to know very directly through our practice with the body as our foundation of mindfulness the characteristics of supporting and pushing. And these aren't conceptual, they're direct experience. So this ultimate reality of the body, the understanding of the ultimate nature of this body in its elemental characteristics, we can come to know that quite easily with practice. The body is a very important and illuminating step along the path of right view, understanding the body in its experiential nature. And this understanding of not-self, the impersonality of the nature of things, of how it is. With this essentially impersonal karmic process, our actions are like the seeds that are planted and then transformed by the shifting patterns of our life. Some seeds are cultivated and some seeds are nourished. Some seeds are dormant for many, many years many lifetimes, we could say, until the exact combinations of conditions uh, and causes arise to germinate the seeds, so to say. And always the fruit will bear a direct relationship to the seed. The metaphor that's often used with this teaching is that apple seeds bring apples into the world. Lettuce seeds bring lettuce into the world. A loving act at some point ends up bearing loving fruit. 
and angry or hateful acts produce hateful fruit. Not self or impersonality behind our actions. This is a very important point actually. Not self or impersonality behind our actions doesn't discount our responsibility for the things that we do. Sometimes there's misunderstanding in this area. Kama is a very powerful force that inevitably makes itself felt. We need to couple our understanding of selflessness or not-self with a very mindful and respectful attention to our motivations and our actions and their karmic fruit. When we begin to understand more deeply that kama is based on intention, based on motivation, we begin to see the enormous and important responsibility that we have to become aware of intentions, to become aware of the motivations that precede our actions. If we're unaware of the motives in our mind, then unwholesome, unskillful intentions arise. When they arise, we might very likely unmindfully act on them and consequently create the conditions for, the, for immediate or future suffering. And some words from Padmasambhava, who was uh, said to have brought the Buddhist teachings to Tibet uh, and Bhutan. He said, though your vision is as vast as the sky, your attention to the law of Kama should be as fine as a grain of barley flour. Mindfulness of our own intentions before we speak or before we act and awareness of the karmic fruit of our words and actions once they've been said and performed has the effect actually of broadening our field of choice as we work, as we practice to purify and transform the heart, the mind, and action and our actions. So we're not acting on automatic. We have a much broader field of choice. When we mindfully experience the effects of our actions, we see, for instance, that extending generosity, extending loving kindness and compassion towards others, it comes back to us. And we see, we also see and feel the effects of approaching the world with, say, aggression or anger or greed or grasping. That comes back to us as well in some way. I think a very important point to consider in relationship to these teachings and practices is that it's really not so important where your present suffering came from. What's really important is where you take it from here. Meaning, what's most important is how you approach the situation in this moment. So, for instance, the appropriate and healthy and wholesome response to suffering, whatever the cause of it might be, is compassion. 
as we traverse this path through our practice, we clearly begin to see and to know that there's a refuge, a particular kind of refuge, a refuge where the suffering uh, of confusion, of anger, of fear, of resistance, of disconnect, discontent, it's a very long list, where this suffering can be dispelled. And that refuge is through our good deeds. So refuge from this perspective is in wholesome motivation, wholesome intentions, thoughts, words, and performing wholesome actions. And as we take this refuge, there really comes to be a growing confidence in the protecting power of good deeds that we've done in the past and a growing courage to perform more and more wholesome deeds right now. Even in the midst of what might seem to be some hardship in our current life. And of course our practice itself, this incredible training that we're engaged in of the heart and the mind, is a very good deed, the best good deed we could say and really the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness in through all aspects of our life. One of the things that's been very important for me in understanding Kama is that it's always the right time to perform wholesome actions. It's always the right time to do good deeds. It's never too late. We've all heard and maybe even expressed, well, it's just too late. You know, I'm, I'm too old, it's too late. It's never too late. Never. And so we practice this. And it becomes established in us. And it becomes a refuge. And at some point we really know for sure, as was said by one of the Buddha's disciples, more and more ceases the misery and evil rooted in the past. And in this present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else then can the future bring other than increase of the good? As this becomes more and more a certainty in our mind, the heart, the mind, becomes more tranquil, more serene. And through our practice we gain then the great strength of a calm, focused mind and a patient heart, and the growing evenness and balance of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges and the various difficulties that come in through our practice and come in to our life as a whole. As the refuge of doing good deeds becomes our way, we could say, our deeds become our friend rather than our adversary. Even if sometimes the immediate result of our deeds bring us maybe some sorrow or maybe some discomfort or pain, maybe through the way that others treat us or through some upheaval or some turmoil in our life or maybe through some surprising or maybe unrecognizable phenomena that shows up in our practice. And sometimes the results of our good deeds might not be at all what we've expected, not what we had in mind. 
results that are maybe even contrary to what we might think our intention or our motivation was. Many years ago now, I had a therapist who would uh, sometimes say to me, uh, or actually more accurately say for me uh, at appropriate times in the work we were doing together, she would say for me, this isn't what I had in mind (laughs) when something would happen or be said or what I might be obviously feeling. And this would always stop me right immediately in my tracks and move me to take a look to take a very close look at my motivations and my expectations. And most importantly in those moments, to simply be with what was occurring, with an open heart and a clear mind, as much as it was possible in those moments. If we make suffering our teacher, then in a sense, it becomes our friend. Maybe sometimes a a pretty stern and in a certain way a demanding teacher, yet potentially a very truthful and well-intended friend. We learn about ourselves, which uh, seems to be our most difficult subject. The teachings of Kama and the understanding therein can imbue us with a very powerful motivation to free ourselves from Kama. To free ourselves from the actions that again and again and again throw us into repeated suffering. To free ourselves in this very life from repeatedly being born or repeatedly being reborn in this very life into the realm of suffering. I'd like to read a a section of uh, an autobiography written by Jacques Lucien called And There Was Light that very beautifully illuminates um, this discussion about Kama. Jacques Lucien was a... in the Second World War was uh, involved with the French resistance movement. But that's not what this section is about. (laughs) It was a great surprise to me to find myself blind, and being blind was not at all as I had imagined, nor was it as the people around me seemed to think it. They told me that to be blind meant not to see. Yet how was I to believe them when I saw? Not at once, I admit, not in the days immediately after the operation, for at that time I still wanted to use my eyes. I followed their usual path. I looked in the direction where I was in the habit of seeing before the accident, and there was anguish. A lack, a lack, something like a void, which filled me with what grown-ups call despair. Finally, one day, and it was not long in coming, I realized that I was looking in the wrong way. It was as simple as that. I was making something very like the mistake people make who change their glasses without adjusting themselves. I was looking too far off and too much on the surface of things. At this point, some instinct 
made me change course, and I began to look more closely. Not at things, but at a world closer to myself, looking from an inner place to one further within, instead of clinging to the movement of sight toward the world outside. Immediately, the substance of the universe drew together, redefined, and peopled itself anew. I was aware of a radiance emanating from a place I knew nothing about, a place which might as well have been outside me as within. But radiance was there, or to put it more precisely, light. It was a fact, for light was there. I felt indescribable relief and happiness so great it almost made me laugh. Confidence and gratitude came as if a prayer had been answered. I found light and joy at the same moment, and I can say without hesitation that from that time on, light and joy have never been separated in my experience. I have them, I have had them or lost them together. I saw light and went on seeing it, th though I was blind. I said so. But for many years, I think I did not say it very loud. Until I was nearly 14, I remember calling the experience which kept renewing itself inside me my secret and speaking of it only to my most intimate friends. I don't know whether they believed me, but they listened to me for they were friends. And what I told them had a greater value than being merely true. It had the value of being beautiful, a dream, an enchantment, almost like magic. The amazing thing was that it was not magic for me at all, but reality. I could no more have denied it than people with eyes can deny that they see. I was not light myself, I knew that, but I bathed in it as an element which blindness had suddenly brought much closer. I could feel light rising, spreading, resting on objects, giving them form, then leaving them. Withdrawing or diminishing is what I mean, for the opposite of light was never present. Sighted people always talk about the night of blindness, and that seems to them quite natural. But there is no such night, for at every waking hour, and even in my dreams, I lived in a stream of light. Without my eyes, light was much more stable than it had been with them. As I remember it, there were no longer the same differences between things lighted brightly, less brightly, or not at all. I saw the whole world in light, existing through it and because of it. Still, there were times when the light faded, almost to the point of disappearing. It happened every time I was afraid. If instead of letting myself be carried along by confidence and throwing myself into things, I hesitated, calculated, thought about the wall, the half-open door, the key in the lock, if I said to myself that all these things were hostile and about to strike or scratch, then without exception I hit or wounded myself. The only easy way to move around the house, the garden, or the beach was by not thinking about it at all, or thinking as little as possible. Then I moved between obstacles, the way they say bats do. What the loss of my eyes had not accomplished was brought about by fear. It made me blind. Anger and impatience had the same effect, throwing everything into confusion. The minute before, I knew just where everything in the room was, but if I got angry things got angrier than I. They went and hid in the most unlikely corners, mixed, mixed themselves up, turned turtle, muttered like crazy men, and looked wild. As for me, I no longer knew, knew where to put a hand or foot. Everything hurt me. The mechanism worked so well that I became cautious. When I was playing with my small, small companions, if I suddenly grew anxious to win or to be first at all costs, then all at once I could see nothing 
Literally, I went into fog or smoke. I could no longer afford to be jealous or unfriendly. As soon, as soon as I was, a bandage came down over my eyes, and I was bound hand and foot and cast aside. All at once a black hole opened, and I was helpless inside it. But when I was happy and serene, approached people with confidence, and thought well of them, I was rewarded with light. So is it surprising that I loved friendship and harmony when I was very young? I always knew where the road was open and where it was closed. I had only to look at the bright signal which taught me how to live. All of us, whether blind or not, are terribly greedy. We want things only for ourselves. Even without realizing it, we want the universe to be like us and give us all the room in it. But a blind child learns very quickly that this cannot be. He has to learn it, for every time he forgets that he's not alone in the world, he strikes against an object, hurts himself, and is called to order. But each time he remembers, he is rewarded, for everything comes his way. Closing the talk this evening with some words from the Buddha. All conditions have mind as forerunner, mind as master, are accomplished by mind. Whatever one says or does with an unclear mind brings suffering in its wake, just as the cartwheel follows the ox's hoof. Whatever one says or does with a clear mind brings happiness in its wake, just as the shadow follows its owner. And the Buddha goes on to say, Therefore one should reflect repeatedly on one's own mind in this way. For a long time, the sanctity or purity of this mind has been destroyed by greed, by hatred, and by delusion. And then the Buddha goes on to say, It is by mental defilement beings are defiled. It is by mental purification that beings are purified. And let's sit quietly for just a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.